This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Imaginary disease etiologies. Feng Shui filmography. Setting introductions. And the Benandante. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Robin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash Robin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The hedrals are getting poly, but they're feeling kind of sickly in the gaming hut. Uh, this time we're going to talk about disease etiologies of imagined cultures. And we know what a disease is, we know what a culture is, we know what our imagination is, but perhaps the word etiology is not of your tongue. And that's basically the system by which cultures uh, attribute the spread of disease. And uh, now that we've entered the scientific era, where uh, most of the people on the planet are uh, in basic agreement. Uh, <laughs> With the exception of Marin County. And, yes, there's some <laughs> stuff on the sidelines. Uh, but uh, in general, we, uh, I think even probably the anti-vaxxers decide, uh, know that uh, diseases are spread by contagion and germs. They're just uh, <laughs> overestimating the risks of uh, vaccines by about a billionfold and underestimating the risks of not vaccinating by a similar billionfold. So if you're yeah. counting at home, that's two billionfold. Uh, but uh, it was not so long ago that uh, uh, Westerners thought that uh, diseases came from an imbalance of the four uh, humors in their bodies. And, uh, of course, all sorts of other different cultures have had uh, usually connect disease to their uh, religious systems. So that if uh, you have a disease in a uh, in a shamanic culture, it's probably the case that someone is... Uh, uh, committing an act of uh, sorcery against you or the spirits are angry at you because you've committed a sin or a taboo. So uh, what you need to do is get the whole community together and, and focus on what is a community-based sin or offense. It might not even be you, who, the sick person who's responsible. So uh, what you may need to do is uh, tell all the women of your group not to eat the blubber of female seals for the next season, and that'll clear everything up. So we're talking Good about advice. what happens when you design an imaginary culture uh, and uh, outside of the scientific worldview, how many different uh, ways uh, you could attribute disease to, and then how that would interact with the um, magic systems in your game, because almost any uh, gameable setting has healing, because people need to be healed when they get into fights, or um, less commonly uh, get disease, which they normally get while 
probing into things that they shouldn't be in order to get the treasure out of them. So, uh, Ken, how would you uh, start off with uh, deciding if you're going to build a culture around an unknown, previously unexplored source of uh, disease or attributed source of disease, uh, where would you start? Okay, uh, in a in a fantasy world, uh, first of all, I think that it's fun if diseases, and, and again, like we've talked about previously in a in an F twenty game or really in any game, it's fun if your opponent has a face on it. Because I wrote a chapter, or not a chapter, I wrote a section in GURPS Horror on how to do Outbreak and how to do all the other sort of man versus disease sorts of horror movies, and the answer is here are how you roll to fight the disease, and here's all the things you have to do to make that not really, really boring. And so the if you can give the disease a personality, whether it's Pazuzu, uh, a, a demon, or whether it's a bunch of um, uh, of, of different uh, little spirits that all have to be placated one by one, or if it is a god, uh, the, a full-on god that is smiting your, your people and cursing you because you didn't give enough money to the to the clerics, or because you um, didn't kill the Midianites good enough, or whatever the reason is, uh, that is a more promising way to drive a story. And so, therefore, I would create a culture. I mean, if I'm creating the, the sort of these uh, the, the world, I want to have a world in which the understanding of disease remains personal, and that if you want to have sort of the people who are really good at, at fighting disease, maybe they're also the people who are really good at debate or really good at argument. And so uh, a culture that, that can, can battle disease is a culture that has a strong uh, oral tradition of, and, and that might be bardic satire for the Celts, or it might be, you know, logical debate uh, in the Greek agora, or it might be answering a bunch of really hard questions like the Confucianists, or there might be a bunch of different ways to uh, to make your mark and impress disease spirits. So the, the etiology of this, the, the origin of disease in this culture is that disease is spread by people having bad ideas. Yeah. And so it is the job of the debaters in this culture to go around and uh, argue people logically out of their bad ideas so that people don't start getting sick. And again, there's a uh, not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation of someone who has a bad idea is not necessarily the one who gets sick, but your bad idea means that, uh, you know, your mother gets sick or just a person you passed on the street, that you are sort of a typhoid Mary of intellectual error that then translates into disease for other people that you come into contact with and you become unclean. And so that then tells us all sorts of other things about that culture beyond what it does when it's fighting disease. It implies, for example, in this instance, that you've got a very conservative culture where there's a set of good ideas that have been set out. And then anybody who comes up with a new idea, it's probably bad unless at the big debate, the professional healers can be swayed by that idea and admit that it's their own idea that is now bad and it's been making people sick. But again, it's one that uh, whether it just uh, sticks with one set of conservative ideas or has a dialectic between new and old ideas is one in which uh, the intellect and logic becomes uh, imperative to everybody because you may not be an intellectual, but what the intellectuals are doing might make you sick if they get it wrong. Yeah, I think that's 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 actually sort of not what I was talking about. I was talking about more conventional sort of uh, animism or shamanism, uh, understanding diseases as personality. But I do like the idea that uh, diseases are caused not by an imbalance of humors, but by an imbalance of, of logic. Uh, I, I did mention that you could have druidic satire as a way to stop diseases. You just mock the disease out of the guy's body. Um, but I guess that's sort of the... Um, uh, you know, I don't know, the daily show of, of fantasy doctors as opposed to the, you know, Nova of fantasy doctors. Um, well, that brings to mind the idea of Clarence's healers, right? It could be that excessive order that breeds disease and you can't have too much chaos or that breaks your society down. But it may be that uh, if people are too serious and too solemn, and perhaps we're imagining a quasi Nordic imaginary culture up near the the gloomy depths of the sky where uh, it's uh, dark most of the time and there's a uh, the average person tends towards a great uh, seriousness and so you bring in these outsiders these clowns to come in and they perform and caper and if they make people laugh the laughter uh, then drives away the uh, the disease so that uh, you restore balance and whether that's uh, driving away the uh, spirits of over seriousness 
or allowing people's uh, humors to rebalance, that then too tells you a lot about the uh, both the dominant culture and the sort of escape hatch that it builds into it to uh, make people uh, still be able to live and work together, even though there's this sort of otherwise kind of stultifying social order and uh, a set of mannerisms that you typically have to adhere to, and you're only allowed to release them when the uh, clown doctor is called. <laughs> when the clown doctor is called. Or Dr. Clown. I suppose a clown doctor technically fixes clowns. A Dr. Clown fixes Well, that's you. the kind of rationality that causes a disease, my friend. <laughs> the, uh, the other possibility that sort of along those lines is that disease is caused by being out of sync with the magical environment. So every, say, every house of the Zodiac or every year, you know, the, the, you've got the year of the rabbit through snake through whatever. Um, all of those uh, entities are sort of patrons of a certain sort of disease or a certain sort of health. And you have to, you have to change society probably uh, in an epicyclic as opposed to a revolutionary way every year or every, um, uh, or every period of time, however many years you make your, your, your phase. Um, and if you're not, if you're living a, a rabbit life in a snake year, you are going to get sick. Even if living a rabbit life made a great amount of sense, when you when it was year of the rabbit and that's sort of an expansion of the notion uh that i think the aztecs had and the egyptians that every year or every day even had a tutelary deity and if you were getting up the nose of that deity that would give you bad luck on that day whether that was a thing you could do on any other day of the year or not and so every day has its own little taboos and in this case you might want to. You wouldn't want to do it every day because that would drive the players bananas. But you could make it every year or every you know couple of sessions. It's like, oh, now the constellations have moved, and now you all have to behave really Gemini, or else everyone's going to get you know uh, horribly, horribly ill. Your mention of satire as a means of fighting disease uh, is something that can be flipped on its head into satire as a means of disease. That you may have a culture that believes that people's negative opinions about you and that damage to your reputation causes is then reflected in physical disease. So that if your uh, arm starts to wither, that means that uh, people are talking smack about you. And the people you really, really need to worry about are the talented satirical poets who uh, write down uh, cutting Von Moe's about their opponents. And so, uh, and this is not even necessarily something that has to happen in public, but just if the satirical writing is strong enough that it hurts you so that you then have you a might have satirical extortionists who come around to your villa and require a gift <laughs> of gold that's, that's that an ugly don't... shirt steve it'd be a shame if someone made fun of it <laughs> exactly yes and you know, that that toga i caught you wearing that that's frayed at the ham i have a whole quatrain about that that's ready right. to go and so uh you could either uh, pay off the Satirists, you can pay them more to satirize your opponents, um, or if you uh, don't want to uh, do that, you hire the anti-satirists who can then uh, tell what literary style caused your disease. And uh, oh, a withered arm! Well, that's uh, clearly a sonnet form, <laughs> and uh, uh, Petronius is the master of that. Uh, let's go break into his villa and see if he's written anything about you. And so that can give you your idea of disease having a personal face it's something that uh, gives you uh where you can go out and fight uh, the source of the disease but here the source of the disease is not a spirit or even a shaman but uh, a poet uh, another possibility is that uh disease is like the, the 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 tail off or the toxic runoff of magic use right and so it, it's like um, you know, sort of uh, building a nuclear power in the so uh, a nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. You want the sweet, tasty electricity, but you have no idea what to do with the runoff, and so you have to sort of just point it at kulaks and hope that no one notices. Um, and so the the tension in the setting is: I really want to use this magic to a maybe cure a disease, but certainly b to you know fight uh, griffins or something. But if I do, I know that I'm going to cause disease, and can I get away with it? And so it becomes a every man's hand is against the magic user. It's a game of it. It, it, it justifies why, if magic works, people keep it secret because just like the you know good old medieval Europeans know, uh, you get witches. That's how you get crop blight. That's how you get murrins on your cattle and um uh, and and um uh, dropsy and stuff. Um, and to flip that on its head. 
Another cause of disease in a uh, imaginary culture could be that uh, health is an unnatural state uh, which needs to be maintained through magic so that the sorcerers who run your city have to keep this arrangement of gems in a particular setup, or even they have to maintain the architectural pattern of the city so that the ley lines are positive and conduct positive health energy throughout the city to the residents of the city um, instead of being blocked. The opposite of sick building syndrome. Right, which um, I guess gets us into sort of a feng shui sort of area. Mm-hmm. And uh, so therefore... Or just sewage, right? I mean, right. that's the thing that actually clears up disease uh, more than, you know, it, the, 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 the improvement in, in, um, uh, in human life expectancies in cities predates the discovery of germ theory. It's the discovery that we can build a sewer and not have to step in feces all the time. That's the thing that actually sort of breaks the back of infectious disease and turns a city from a demographic sink into a demographic resource. Yes, where we start really paying attention to all those signals our body is telling us to get away from feces. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we actually have a choice. <laughs> yeah. And in an F20 game, uh, you could also give each different uh, species of creatures its own disease ideology, which might be true for them, uh, making it challenging for, uh, you know, a cleric to heal a goblin. So you could have uh, the goblins could believe that uh, excessive cleanliness causes disease. If a place doesn't smell and you're not uh, rooting around in uh, uh, fungus and beetle dung, that uh, you're you're exposing your body to uh, the potential for disease, which I guess is sort of the a par- hateful disease of the sun, right? Uh, which is kind of a parody, I guess, of the idea that there is some thought that the increase in allergies is because our environments are too sterile now. Because no one's kids. playing in the backyard anymore. Yeah, and so you could go down a list of each of the different, you know, and the bugbears uh, could feel that, you know, well, it's you need to have a certain amount of bone marrow in your diet, or you start to get sick. So. That explains bugbear behavior right there. And you can go on down the line, and uh, anything that is intelligent and uh, has a culture could have a whole different set of beliefs about why they get sick. And then you can decide either, well, those are just their wrong beliefs, or they could be right for each uh, group. That The thing to do with a, a goblin when he has a, a wound is to make sure that you pack it with dirt. Uh, and, is to uh, hit him again with the axe. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> It depends on how much you want to keep that goblin alive. <laughs> Not a lot. He's just going to be bringing his, his filthy fungus and feces around all the time. Uh, well, I guess on, on that uh, note of anti-goblin sentiment, uh, we will move on to our next time. Hey, map lovers. Scale Realms RPG Maps and Plans has a brand new Kickstarter running from March 2nd to April 2nd. The campaign features full-color, high-quality maps with 3D structures and landscaping, with a hex or square option. The name behind Scale Realms is Jeff James, a professional CAD draftsman and DC supervillain. Jeff hopes that fellow gamers, uh, mini-makers, and RPG fans will help him raise $2,000 to purchase the necessary computer to complete these maps and more. To pledge a donation and to learn more about Jeff James and his plans to rob every jewelry store in Central City in an hour, oh, and his Kickstarter campaign, go to ScaleRealms.com and click on the link. The rattle of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the whispering of the usher saying that he has a question for us tell us we're in a Cinema Hut version of Ask Ken and Robin. Joshua Weiss asks us, before the film starts, to recommend a feng shui watch list. Movies you should watch uh, while, before, during, and after playing feng shui. And, uh, Robin, there's a list here in the in the script, so do you want to just start off and I make uh, entertaining noises? Is that how we think we're going to go? Uh, well, why don't you uh, hit me with each title and explain why uh, this, I think, is one of the... So, so the idea is if you've got a new group of players and you want to introduce them to the um, feng shui zeitgeist... Uh, where do you start? And, you know, I could list dozens and dozens of, of titles uh, where we're not confined by our uh, listeners' patience. Um, Had we space enough in time. But I picked a few to start us off with. And these are all ones that are mentioned in Blowing Up the Movies, uh, which is a book that grew out of the Feng Shui 2 Kickstarter and will be available as a standalone uh, book. And it takes a look at a whole bunch of different 
films and looking at uh, and each of them talks a bit about the film and then draws conclusions about how uh, Feng Shui in particular and other tabletop role-playing games uh, in general uh, can draw inspiration from various things that they do, whether it be uh, structurally or in the way that they describe scenes and so forth. But these ones are the ones that I think really together sum up the uh, Feng Shui ethos. Okay. And I will uh, hold my questions until later on. So we begin, as all things should, with John Woo uh, directing Chow Yun-Fat in The Killer. And Robin, for the people who... And uh, people keep getting born, and then they grow up, and then they can vote, but they haven't seen The Killer yet. So if you can just sort of explain to the to the kids uh, who, who need guidance why they should have already seen The Killer instead of depending on a podcast to tell them, that would be helpful, I think. Right. Uh, so uh, John Woo is uh, the sort of king of the heroic bloodshed genre. And that's the uh, style of action film that uh, he kind of spawned along with uh, Choi Hawk, who we'll get to in a sec, that uh, is sort of usually modern gangster film set in the contemporary era and uh, with a lot of gunplay, but also really inventive use of action choreography. A lot of wire work, even though it's supposedly a realistic world. So when someone gets shot with a gun, they'll often be uh, pulled several meters away on wires and uh, everything in the set explodes. There's lots of slow motion and uh, Wu does a really great job of always sort of subliminally setting the stage of the action uh, before the fight starts so that he is a master of orienting you in the space of the fight before the guns start blazing. Very much so, yes. Yeah, and he's also got a bunch of uh, signature action moves that are very John Woo that you can see all of in The Killer. So, for example, uh, the guy uh, shooting with two pistols at once, no point shooting at somebody unless you're going to empty a clip into them or perhaps empty the clips of your two guns into them. The uh, leaping horizontally through the air while firing your two guns uh, there's uh, the old uh, being on a gurney and sliding along the gurney with the guns blazing trick. Uh, and particularly in The Killer, he doesn't use this in everyone, but there's a, a really interesting uh, visual flourish, which is completely unrealistic, in which every blood squib shoots off sparks as well as blood. The effect is as if, uh, you know, explosive rounds work actually quite differently than real explosive rounds, which expand yes. inside you. Uh, but here they literally kind of, uh, which is cool. But that's. Uh, there's a bunch of John Woo movies that could show you all of those things. The reason that I picked The Killer is it is the most narratively compact one, and it's also the one that best typifies the high romantic style of classic Hong Kong. And I think that's the one element that we, as people who are perhaps more used to uh, Western action movies, find harder to deliver, is that this is this film is so sincere that it seems satirical at times, uh, which in a way sort of uh, evokes the uh, quite different melodramatic work of uh, a director named Douglas Sirk, who worked in the Hollywood system in the 40s and 50s and 60s. But the florid romanticism of this film, which is about a an assassin who blinds an innocent woman, a uh, cocktail club singer, while committing a hit and then resolves to raise the money to get the operation to get her sight restored. And there's a determined maverick cop who's after him and the uh, homoerotic or perhaps non-sexual love <laughs> crush that uh, this detective played by Danny Lee has on the uh, Chow Yun-Fat character is also a huge uh, part of the big emotionalism of the scene. There's one sequence where romantic music plays as it lovingly pans over a whole bunch of different identical artist sketches of the suspect as Danny Lee looks longingly at it. And it's more about the formation of them as a couple than it is about the uh, love relationship, uh, the triangle with the, uh, with the woman who's been blinded. So it, uh, and it uses all sorts of different techniques. There's uh, a huge use of uh, Christian iconography as well. And there's freeze frames and over the top music. So it's, really not afraid to be hugely emotional in a way that I think we're predisposed to make fun of. And I think your players will still kind of mock in a way, but also if they see the killer that I think they will begin to be able to appreciate that as well as a, 
uh, uh, style point. And that um, sort of lurch from between genres and between moods is very typical of Hong Kong cinema, particularly in the classic wave of the late 80s and the early 90s. Uh, you see it a little less now, but it's still there. But if you really want to see uh, the perfect combination of high emotionalism and high action, it's The Killer from John Woo. I wouldn't even call it a lurch. I would call it like a grand jeté. It's a balletic leap between uh, moods. I think I think yeah, lurch so in, is... In fact, in, in, in The Killer, it doesn't lurch. It's cons The yeah, mood is consistent. Yeah. But right. in other films, uh, even in uh, the one I think we'll get to next, uh, it can a Hong Kong film can go from low comedy to suspense to thrilling action to screaming teary melodrama all in you know just boom 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 in a way that you would not expect a, a Hollywood film to ever do and speaking of the next film uh, we're talking about Sui Hark's Once Upon in China which uh, was that the first of the Wong Fai Hung movies with Jet Li or was it not yes. it was, yes. I'm pretty sure um, it was the first one I saw so right so uh, the game Feng Shui uh, has uh, four time junctures and uh, relate to uh, the sort of the three key subgenres of Hong Kong action with another uh, sort of futuristic one uh, bolted on for uniqueness and spice. And so this is the film, uh, Once Upon a Time in China, that gives you the milieu and action style of the 19th century uh, juncture. So uh, this gives you the uh, heroic uh, Western, uh, or sorry, the, the heroic Eastern uh, freedom fighter who is opposed to the uh, imperial bowing to the uh, desires of the Western imperial powers. And it's a film that uh, not only has great action, it has sort of, uh, again, kooky comedy, it has melodrama, and it has a real sort of anger and, and a sense of menace behind it as well. And uh, the bad, if you're used to seeing, you know, the good guys always being Westerners and the uh, bad guys always being non-Westerners, this turns that completely on its uh, head by making the uh, the Western bad guys as bad and despicable as any stereotyped group has ever been depicted in uh, any film. So that's sort and of they're a, Americans too. They're not even British. They're not even British. They're Americans. The the plot of this one is that they're basically stealing slave labor to take to work on the railroads. So you get to see Jet Li, who's another iconic uh, action star of that late 80s, early 90s period. Uh, like Chow Yun-Fat, he's still working today, but because he's much more of an athletic star, you really want to see him in his prime rather than seeing his current stuff. Where It's like the difference between the Washington Wizards' Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls' Michael Jordan. Right. Um, and so there, there's great uh, choreography, and it really evokes that uh, period. And so if you want to show people the 1850s juncture and the conflict between what in the game is the guiding hand uh, group of uh, monks and the ascended who are the, sort of the uh, world-spanning uh, political power that be and, and masters of colonialism, you can uh, fairly easily uh, jigger the uh, literal details of this film and map it onto uh, the Feng Shui setting. And now uh, we're moving closer, I think, to what people might have seen who are, who are the youth, uh, today's youth, uh, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, which of course, is, I guess, it was Ang Lee, right? Yeah, so this is a 2001 film by Ang Lee, and this is the film that introduces the West to uh, wuxia action, the, the genre of the flying people movie. So this corresponds to the ancient juncture in Feng Shui, uh, which has now been moved to the Tang Dynasty in Feng Shui too. And so this, again, has Chow Yun-Fat uh, playing pretty much... Uh, for the first time in, since his sort of superstar era anyway in a uh, period martial arts movie. There's actually some older crummy exceptions, but it's the big, uh, his sort of big signature role in the genre. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, who's also a, uh, a classic uh, Hong Kong action star, who uh, is also a really uh, moving and affecting actress. Uh, and it's about their... Uh, the repression of their love that they've had for uh, uh, decades, but have been, uh, they're too repressed uh, to act upon because uh, she was uh, affianced to his best friend before his best friend was killed. And it has uh, uh, Zhang Ziyi as the headstrong young woman who wants to join the world of martial arts and uh, doesn't, uh, uh, isn't too headstrong and unrealistic to understand what that really means. Remains of the day with sword fights. Uh, yes. And in fact, uh, the, the essay in Blowing Up the Movies is all about how this is a kung fu action movie, but it's also a kung fu drama. Right? There's no fight in this film that does not 
service the emotional inner lives of the characters. There's no uh, real procedural goal that they are uh, uh, pursuing uh, so much as everybody has an emotional desire, which they uh, resolve by fighting. And it has an incredible sense of visual beauty about it. Cinematography by Christopher Doyle is uh, makes it among the most gorgeous movies ever filmed. And that uh, visual style translates into uh, Yun Wu Ping's action choreography, which is very languid and never tries to conceal the fact that they are on wires. Although, of course, you don't see the wires, but you can just visually tell that. Uh, and I remember the moment in the theater uh, as a schooled student of Hong Kong cinema when the uh, fighters lift gracefully into the air and start kicking each other, this sort of uh, wave of that went through the audience <laughs> as that happened. Um, and so, although the uh, the earlier Hong Kong films are uh, sometimes kind of crudely made, this one is just really a gorgeous piece of filmmaking on every level and is maybe an easier way to get people into the very stylized way that action is presented in uh, a more fantasy-oriented uh, fight film. And now you say it's ancient, but of course one of the lessons of feng shui is that you can uh, mix and match because it's actually set during the Manchu dynasty, which is to say the early modern period. Right. So Yes, it's, it creates the uh, feeling of the ancient period in the feng shui uh, genre, but uh, a lot of things that uh, feel older to us uh, in Chinese and even in Japanese films are actually chronologically quite recent. And uh, we move on into uh, Savior of the Soul, which I I don't remember. I must have seen it, but I actually have no memory of seeing it. So, Robin, tell me why I should, uh, in my copious free time, uh, find it on Netflix or wherever and watch it again. Okay, so this is a the craziest movie on this list, and this is mostly here to introduce you to the craziness of the genre-blending style of Hong Kong action film. This has uh, two directors, David Lai and Corey Yin, and I think uncredited direction by yet another director. And it's uh, sort of an, set in an indefinable near-future version of Hong Kong in which the characters are city warriors, but they're fighting sort of fantastic characters, and they're uh, drawn into this strange world where like a full-on pirate will just suddenly show up and no one will blink an eye at that. And uh, it seems like it's based on a comic strip, but it's uh, apparently not. Just it, based on Wong Kar Wai having fallen out of bed a couple of times, I guess. And uh, it's got uh, uh, Andy Lau, who's uh, another iconic Hong Kong uh, star who is still very active today and was is even more famous as a pop star than a movie star in Hong Kong. Uh, but it's this sort of crazy mix of elements and it's uh it's a completely set bound uh film and the sets are enormous and uh look bizarre and dwarf the characters and the characters have bizarro superpowers and uh so it sort of uh is the uh kernel of the idea that i later transformed into the netherworld which is this sort of unreal uh connecting series of connecting tunnels that fits all of the different time genres in the feng shui universe together. And so it's, it gives me sort of the sense of what I think the netherworld looks like, where there'll be a big uh, industrial fan casting green light on the floor in a marble wall, and then the next room will look like uh, Roman ruins. And it's, you know, full of crazy characters like the Queen of Pets, who's a master of healing powers. And even though it's completely Fruit Loops, I actually find it pretty entrancing and fun. And so uh, this is not the first movie to I'm show I'm not you. sure you're using even though correctly there. <laughs> well, there are a lot of films that make no sense whatsoever where that's not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but here, uh, that's the, that is part of the fun. And, and making no sense and being uh, uh, wonderfully entertaining without being, you know, something that you're laughing at because it is bad is uh, rarer than you might think. But mm -hmm. it is certainly completely crazy pants and that's what's awesome about it uh but if you think your characters will, or your players i should say are afraid of crazy pants and somehow want their genre stuff to be um somber and make all sorts of sense uh you'd want to drop this in later but this sort of uh more than anything else uh evokes in one film the sort of mix master of genres that feng shui presents okay and uh in a not so much a mix master but a little bit more of a mashup You've got sort of the quasi-steampunk, quasi-detective, quasi-medieval 
Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame, which I I think I liked more than it was worth, but I know what I think it makes a better movie to watch for a game than a movie to watch to be a movie, if that makes any sense. Is that sound, or do you think it's better than I think it is? I, I love this film. I, I think okay. it is a masterpiece, actually. I find it really entrancing and wonderful, and uh, uh, and it's sort of a career resurgence for Troy Hawk. I'm picking this as a recent film uh, that takes full advantage of modern filmmaking techniques, but still delivers wuxia thrills. Um, it's interesting in a gaming perspective in that it's also, it's not just a, a kung fu uh, action movie, but it's a mystery. And the uh, presentation of the clues and the uh, detective being led through the clues and how it advances uh, the storyline, even when he goes in a direction that is not solving the mystery for him is, uh, I think, exemplary not only of Feng Shui, but also of Gumshoe. Um, and it has Andy Lau in it again, and uh, has action choreography by Sammo Hung. It looks beautiful, and uh, it's crazy also, but in a way that it is more in control of its uh, effects. So it has, like, you know, a talking deer will show up, and then there's a fight with the talking deer, and you are seeing... Uh, Choi Fire Hark's, turtles. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's a moment when one weird uh, sage character who they're pursuing uh, takes the pins out of his face and turns into a completely different guy. And they're both played by different iconic Hong Kong ac uh, character actors. So it's like imagining a film where uh, Steve Buscemi shows up and then midway through mor morphs into Christopher Walken. It has that, <laughs> uh, has that sort of effect to it. So uh, this is a more uh, polished version of the crazy uh, feng shui thrills that if you have players who are averse to uh, films that were not uh, made uh, recently. Here's one that's made recently that I think is uh, really effective. And I could do a whole uh, other segment on the next six films on the list or the um, other more recent uh, Hong Kong films, but uh, that gives you your uh, Feng Shui 2 starter kit. brought to you by OdysseyCon 15. Madison, Wisconsin's very own OdysseyCon 15 takes place from April 10th to the 12th, 2015. At the Crown Plaza Hotel. Featuring literary guest of honor, Jonathan Mabry. Literary guest of honor, Heather Brewer. Literary and game design guest of honor, Matt Forbeck. That's twice as good a guest of honor. Four full tracks of panels, writing craft, literature, gaming, and media. Or check out the art show. Benefit auction. The Bluebeard Comedy Show. Cosmo Joe's Bright Paint Art Demos. Weather permitting. D&D Adventurers League games. Pathfinder Society events. Open tabletop gaming. Zombie prom. Full service con suite. And miniatures paint and take. Robin, both you and I have done the guest thing at Odyssey Con. Uh, yeah, I'd really recommend, uh, as I depart from the script, that anyone who wants to go should go, because it's a well-run, relaxed show with a lot of great programming. And also, the con works really hard, I think, to make the guests available to the fans, but also you can sort of just chill out and kind of move at your own speed. It kind of combines that good relax-a-con quality of a good science fiction con with the full plate of possibility that a good gaming or, or multimedia con does. They've sort of managed to thread that needle, I think. So if you're within driving distance of Madison and wondering whether you should head on out... You definitely should. Find out more at odysseycon.org. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Colin T. asks Ken and Robin, how do you best introduce a setting or new game to a group of varying background players without giving them a novel for homework or a series of lectures, and while still being able to have meaningful, established world situations. Uh, Colin has certainly cut us off a big chunk of question. Um, short of lining up five Hong Kong movies to watch, Robin, what do you recommend? If you're going to set something in, say, Glorantha, for people who don't play Glorantha and haven't, you know, been uh, steeping themselves in uh, Greg Stafford's brain matter, what what do you do to give them a sense of the backstory and the depth of that world to let them sort of 
enjoy as much of Glorantha as Glorantha has to offer. Um, you don't try to give them as much of Glorantha as it has to offer to begin with. You give them a tiny little slice of it. You set them all in the same culture in a small area where the characters also know very little about their wider world. They know their own culture, and that's stuff that you can introduce very slowly through the course of adventure, giving the players only as much information as their characters need to know to move through. So what you want to minimize is the effect where you are hitting them with a big chunk of exposition before anything happens. So it could be as simple as saying, you are members of the Orlanthi culture, you're all 13 and 14 year olds, You've just been initiated into the worship of uh, your gods. Uh, you're a worshiper of Orlanth. He's the storm god and the chieftain. You're a worshiper of Lankermai. He's the guy who uh, knows all the information and keeps the secrets. You're an initiate of the trader guy. He's the one who uh, connects uh, different cultures and is willing to spread information instead of hide it. And uh, you are a member of the uh, a smaller cult of uh, Lynx worshippers, and you uh, worship uh, Yinkin, who is the uh, Orlant's cat friend. Oh, and there's some guys you haven't seen before coming over the crest of the hill. Uh, they look like they're from the clan next door, and you've always been fighting with them. What do you do? Right. And so once you get to a what do you do, they can then start to ask you questions, right? So the guy, well, uh, I'm a worshipper of Yinkin. Does that mean that I'm good at creeping around like a cat? And it's like, you got it. You are. And you have this ability and it allows you to do that. Or just describe yourself going there, depending on which of one of Glorantha's many systems you decide to, to utilize. Um, now, not all approaches do that. For example, uh, the 13th Age in Glorantha book, uh, which is much more, it's based, because it's 13th Age, it's based on F20. And it's more about a bunch of disparate guys going around being uh, uh, murder hobos. Um, it puts different cultures together into uh, adventuring parties. But the world focus there is on sort of, you know, introducing you to the world through typical F20 activities. But if I was to, you know, have a more setting focus game, that's what I do is I would start with a tiny sliver of the world, start with the most minimal amount of information I could possibly present in order to have them understand the situation, and then fill in whatever it is they want to know by asking me questions. Because by definition, if you're asking me a question, you're interested in the answer. Whereas if I'm reading you a page of homework, you're not necessarily interested in all that stuff. And it's not necessarily pertinent to what's going to happen in your campaign. Yeah, what I used to do is make sure that everything I gave before the game fit on one page, right? So that there was no sense of, here's your handout. It was the sense of, here's your cheat sheet. Yeah. Right. Because just the 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 sheer um, uh, synesthetics of it is so, or it, not synesthetics. That's not what I mean at all. Kinesthetics of it is that oh, this is a handy little uh, note sheet that I can look at when I want to, as opposed to oh, damn it, a, a, a briefing book. Uh, I don't want that. So I'm I'm uh, that was that was sort of my goal. I I obviously you know honored that somewhat more in the breach than the observance. But even when I would write out a much larger handout, I would make it available, but I would run the game from the one page. So that it, it, the equivalent of if you're playing, say, you know, Exalted, you know, people can go and buy, like, all the books for Exalted and know everything they want about the Exalted world, but you're running it from the one page, and that's where your notes are, and that's how you can, you know, and that's where you look and you say, okay, that's who the Empress is, and that's what's going on there, and that's why North is weird, or, or whatever. And, and so that gives everyone a sense that they're starting sort of on the same foot. And that degree of, of, of discipline that it imposes on you as the GM to really focus on the important things and the main conflicts in the setting and the, and the hooks that drive players into the setting, as opposed to just, you know, your own, uh, my, I'm so clever thinking of this awesome magic system or these great pirates, they're not immediately relevant. Just mention that there are pirates and move on, or don't even mention that there are pirates, mention that there are boats and people will figure out that there are pirates, right? Right, because the world doesn't matter until the characters interact with it. And your duty is to serve either the gamest challenge or the story or whatever combination of both of those things that you introduce. And so only when those things become relevant to figuring out the puzzle or interacting with the chieftain do you need to introduce them. And if you uh, play in a complex world, whether it be the world of darkness or Darun or Talislanta or Glorantha for years and only scratch the surface of what you've got in your reference material, that is actually good uh, because that means that you are 
only presenting the stuff that is uh, is relevant. Um, another thing you want to do is be careful not to construct the story in order to drag the characters from this detail of the world to that detail of the world to this other detail of the world. Think of all of that vast corpus of material that you presumably have digested as something to fall back on when you need it, but not something that you have that you're going to be graded on how you've presented all of it to your characters. So if you play vampire and only three vampire clans ever come into it, that's probably much more uh, brilliant and focused and meaningful to the player's uh, campaign than one in which you dutifully introduce every single clan and none of them ever really come into focus. So as an exercise, think how little of this can I present and still make it uh, an interesting story. And that uh, then makes it more player driven. If you are trying to make sure that you introduce uh, this cult and this holy site and uh, this uh, monster and then get them here for this historical event that's part of the backstory, uh, you are pulling them rather than having them drive the story. If they, on the other, if you allude to the fact that there's this weird pillar on the horizon, which is super significant in the setting and you know everything that's there and it's 400 year history, and then they go over there, that's great. You've got all that stuff to fall back on. But uh, if you're constructing the adventure to get them to go to that place, maybe that's not a super interesting uh, thing. But if you're looking at, well, what are their goals? What is it that they want and wh what do they want to achieve? If those goals take them to the tower, great, you're set. But let the setting be the setting. It's the backdrop. It's not the story. And also let the setting, you know, uh, when you say it's not the story, let the setting, trust the setting to hook them. If it doesn't hook them, explaining it more will not hook them. No one was right. ever convinced to be interested in something by more narration, right? I mean, that's the lesson of that endless first crawl of the of the of, of Star Wars Episode One, right? It's like I'm bored. I'm still bored. Now I'm angry and bored. Uh, that's that's the that, that's the uh, thing. If you've got we do a whole other segment on how infuriating <laughs> it is that all of today's genre movies start off with ten minutes of useless exposition that yeah. the studio demanded that they tack on, but yeah, that's that stuff is intolerable. Yeah, even even when Kate Blanchett is reading you the opening bit of the Silmarillion or whatever it is, you know, I I love Kate Blanchett and I could listen to her read the actual Silmarillion, but I don't want to do it when I'm watching a movie. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so start with what the characters want. Now, in an F20 game, it's simple. They want treasure and a chance to hit things. So you can say, look, over by that ridge where there's that tower, you think it's full of treasure and there's guys crawling around and they look like you could hit them. Yeah. Uh, that might be enough to hook them in. That's simpler. Uh, or, you know, in a more uh, story-driven or drama-driven game, it's like, well, the clan regalia that your uh, grandfather left you to protect uh, from invaders has been stolen and you think it's over there. And if you don't get it back, you will be shamed forever. Bing, that gets them over there. And uh, but you just have to make sure that there's some sort of uh, or ideally you have some sort of connection between what the emotional hook is and what the setting element is. Yeah. And when he uh, when he talks about the novel for homework, obviously, uh, in the Dracula dossier, there literally is a novel for homework, but it's Dracula. And the game, the gamed experience can be played literally on a you're in a room. Uh, find the guy who's trying to kill you, or you're in a room, find the guy who killed that nice man who gave you this awesome copy of Dracula. And then every answer that you get in a properly managed gumshoe game, and especially in a properly managed Nice Black Agents game, drives you further into drama, drives you further into conflict and danger, because the trade-off between information and danger is the, is the, uh, the flywheel of the thriller. And so... You could, you should be able to play the Dracula dossier all the way through without ever actually cracking Dracula. I think that you'll, it, it will be a weaker, uh, emptier game, but, you know, you're not ever gonna be sitting there going, gosh, I, I, I wonder what's next. You've talked to a guy, the guy gave you something next. Do you have information? Usually you have four or five nexts, uh, after, uh, uh, surveilling someone or beating them up or otherwise turning them into an information uh, source as opposed to a uh, an encounter. And, and I think that um, by creating encounters that are strong, that move you towards the next scene, or that move you towards a piece of information, or that even move you towards an in-game play reward, uh, whether it be a, a big pile of treasure, or a buff, or a uh, 
a piece of information that you'll uh, that you'll want to have that answers a question you've asked previously in the setting or that you're asking, you know, in a in a meta level, that provides the reward that pulls you into the setting and like you said uh, at the at the top of this uh, hut, um, when players ask, that's how you know they care. And if you present something interesting, players will ask. And if they don't ask, guess what? It wasn't interesting enough. Interesting it up more, right? Yes, and and have a, an emotional hook, a goal, or yeah. just even a procedural hook, a reason to go there and do that. Have a reason that you hate the Cardinal's Guard because you saw them be mean to that uh, that barmaid, and now you're like, I'm going to push their stupid nose into their face. You don't have to know about. Richelieu and the and the rise of autocracy in the Fra- in, in France. You just know that the Cardinals Guard are a bunch of jerks, so you're going to go sword fight them. And then eventually, yeah, if you want to, you can learn all about Richelieu and all about the Compagnie de Saint Sacrament and the secret uh, plans to to found Canada or whatever else. But right now, there's a bunch of uh, barmaid annoying jerks who need a good stabbing, and that will drive enough story because again, once you've started fights with the Cardinals Guard, the Cardinal comes back. And now you've got a feud. You've got an ongoing enemy. And if it's an ongoing enemy like Richelieu, like I need to tell you, that can provide any number of complications. If the rest of the story seems to be dragging, that's when the next batch of guardsmen show up, or that's when Milady de Winter shows up, or something happens that, to let you know that the Cardinal is now, you know, uh, turning the heat up on you. And you don't you don't play unfair. You don't um, uh, punish the characters for being ignorant. You provide them with drama as a result of them making a snap decision, right? Right. And the the fact is, is that if you present a bunch of uh, written setting material to the players, most of them will read your one page. Uh, most of them will read it on their way to the game on, on the bus or whatever. Um, one of them won't read it at all. Mm-hmm. And then as you're playing along, one or two of the other players may go, if you've got a rich published setting, and pick up the books and read all the books. And there's other issues related to that that you sort of have to sometimes deal with that can be another uh, hut. <laughs> yeah, that can be another hut. Um, so I think basically we've said a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, uh, keep the focus narrow. Uh, start small. Kick to uh, player questions as fast as you can. Just the way is at a panel, we try to kick to audience questions as fast, as, fast as, as we can. can. And uh, I think that answers that question and opens us up to a little bit of uh, spiritual travel to our final hut. The security's creaky stairs, which are limbed by cobwebs, the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky at the top of the stairs, and the creaky leather chair in which he sits tell us that we're once more keeping company with the consulting occultist. And this time we're going to look at a cool, interesting uh, little corner of occult history that I was unfamiliar with until recently and and still only lightly familiar with until I ask Ken about it. And that is the (laughs) Benendante, the Good Walkers. Uh, This is, a, uh, as the name might suggest, a group of Italian magical practitioners who uh, continue uh, sort of uh, shamanic style worship uh, very surprisingly late into history and style themselves as the uh, nickname suggests as the uh, good guy magicians in an overall uh, political structure that did not think the words good guy and magicians went together. Ken, what can you tell us about the Benandante? Okay, the Benandanti, as you mentioned, are the good guys. They are the doers of good, or the good walkers, the people who walk about at night and help. Uh, they believed that they uh, their job was to go into uh, basically the dream world, or into... Uh, and, and when are we talking? The, okay, this is the late 16th century. It's about 1575 that the Inquisition uh, suddenly notices that there's a bunch of good witches wandering around Friuli, which is sort of the next little lap right after you get out of the boot of Italy. So if Italy is a leather boot with a big floppy end, with a big floppy top, this is in the floppy top of the boot. Friuli, and it's 1575 that the um, uh, Inquisitors sort of uh, notice that this is happening, and they go up to Friuli, because someone says, hey, there's witches here, and they come up and they say, well, we're the Inquisition, where are your witches? And someone steps up and says, well, I'm the good witch, and I can point you to the bad witches. And they're like, oh, 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 oh. We're the magical witch hunters. (laughs) And so uh, what they did was they would go uh, at night and they would meet up and they would have their uh, magical 
uh, ceremony that would allow them to send their dream selves out to fight bad witches. And the bad witches uh, uh, came in, in various uh, sort of animal forms, or they, they wielded sorghum as opposed to the good fennel that was wielded by the good witches, and that's how you could tell. I'll be careful next time I spot someone wielding sword. That's right. You can you can shut them down because they're bad witches. Uh, boy and uh, girl witches uh, all had their little roles. The the boy witches beat bad witches ghosts with um uh, with fennel, and the female uh, Ben and Dante would go to the lands of the dead and make sure that everyone's ancestors were copacetic with stuff, and then. This sort of blows up for the Inquisition, and they say, well, all right, we're going to start asking proper witch questions, and the Ben and Dante would say, nope, 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 never did that, never, oh, nope, we did that, but we did it to fight Satan, so it's okay, and it, uh, eventually, after... Have you ever attended a black mass? Well, yeah, (laughs) to kick their ass. To kick their butt. Uh, and so, eventually, about 90 years into the investigation, the year 1661, the Inquisition says... You know what? Just don't do it in public. <laughs> Every <laughs> everyone gets a get has to do penance for you know uh, wielding fennel without proper church authority, and uh, you know stop pestering the Inquisition You're with just your tired crazy witchcraft. Messing with our paradigm, man. Just, just yeah. stop. So the um uh, the, the 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 source for your Benedanti is uh, still and always Carlo Ginzburg's work of historical anthropology, The Night Battles, which sort of goes off into werewolves and other things that are kind of like this in Livonia and places like that. Uh, and Ginsburg says that the Friulian uh, Benendanti are one part of a large shamanic culture belt that goes all the way up into Finland and all the way down into maybe Thrace. And I think he is arguing ahead of the evidence, but it is certainly the case that once you start looking for shamanic werewolves and dream journeys, you see a lot more of it than you would have thought you did, even as late as, say, 1600, when um, there are werewolves in Livonia that are dream werewolves that uh, fight witches but can't hurt people. And did they claim, like, a a long provenance for these beliefs, or was there someone who came along and... Uh, kind of revived older things and organized all this? Do we know how far back th- this goes? Uh, we don't know how far back this goes, which is always the the problem with a with, with an oral tradition that is not written down for the very excellent reason that someone will come and uh, torture you if you start writing it down. Yes. Um, obviously, people of a even more uh, excitable ilk uh, than Ginsburg say, obviously it goes back to pre-Indo-European times, 5000 BC, when we all lived in peace and harmony together before the filthy Aryans showed up with their chariots and their monotheism. Probably it doesn't go back that far. Uh, it might be a... Well, it's sort of more, just in terms of not what's true, but what's more fun. It's more fun oh, absolutely. to think that it would spontaneously regenerate that all of these ideas and complexes are so uh, powerful and intrinsic to the human experience that they would... Or that there are real spirit wolves. Yeah, that they would lock back into place... Uh, rather than, you know, okay, this thing, you know, it existed a long, long, long time. That's also cool, but it's uh, not as entertaining to me at any rate. Yeah. The the other thing that happens is that uh, Friuli is kind of a a shatter zone uh, ethnically and culturally because it's it's German and it's Italian and it's Slavic. And so I suspect that one of the things that one of the reasons that Ginsburg can trace it in the areas that he traces it, is that all those are also cultural shatter zones. And they're places where, uh, after four or five invasions and six or seven religious conversions, people sort of have to pick up sticks and fight witches as best they know how. And the notion that there's a socialized witch-hunting community as opposed to individual witch-smellers is an interesting one. You see it sometimes in West Africa that there's uh, witch-hunting societies, but more often it's individuals. And obviously, in Western Europe by that point, witch-hunting was supposed to be outsourced to the church uh, because uh, when the civil authorities did it, they kept burning people alive, and the church was like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's backwards. (laughs) So there's there's all manner of of interesting stuff going on. Um, You can tie them into uh, the the, the Uskok pirates. They're... Uh, you know, preying on the on the wrecked ships in the Adriatic, and one of the Benandanti's job was to prevent ships from getting wrecked. So you have a uh, werewolf witch versus pirate game going on with the Benandanti already, and that's without even leaving uh, Friuli, much less going all the way up to Livonia or Finland. 
So, let's see. Well, before we move on to the idea of what our Ben and Dante campaign would look like, um, so what was the structure of, was it a secret society? Was it everybody in this culture who participated in this? It's obviously a, a group effort, but uh, would you be initiated into being a Benedante, or how did that work? You would be born with a call, is how we know you're going to be a Benedante. And that's a C-A-U-L? It's when the amniotic sac comes out of your mom with you and is on your face, and so if that call is intact, that's a way you can tell that you're going to be a Benedante, or Benedante. I don't know what the single is, but Benendant, I guess. And the um, uh, and if you're born with a with a call, then someone, probably the midwife, uh, takes you uh, to the guy who she knows who's the current Benendante because she delivered him, and says, "This is the new one, little Antonio." And uh, when little Antonio gets old enough, they explain to him what his job is going to be. So, I kind of think that the Benendante, depending on what part of Friuli you're in, and when most recently the Inquisition has come through. I think that they might be kind of like the Freemasons, or they might be kind of like uh, MI6, right? You know, MI6 has an office. You can go and you can talk to them, but you don't know how many other offices are MI6. Uh, the Freemasons, you know that they've got lodges everywhere. You're not quite sure what they're up to all the time. And I think that the Benedanti kind of fill that, that social role. Um, obviously, in this case, they're more MI5 than MI6 because it's a domestic problem, not a foreign problem. But the basic nature, I suspect, is it's kind of an open secret, and if you really want to find out, you can. Because if you've got a coven of 20 or 40 people in an agricultural community, that's going to be a hard secret to keep. Right. And if there are witches in your neighborhood, you need to know who you've got to call. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, if you got really good Ben and Dante, they're fighting the witches without you even calling them, right? It's like the, the animal control people are keeping um, uh, the raccoons at bay without you ever seeing them. And if they let... In, it's only when you start having raccoons showing up in your um, uh, in, in, in your trash cans that you know that maybe your local animal control slash Ben and Dante are not getting it done. So if you start seeing witch sign around you, that's when you maybe go to the midwife and you say, obviously you, uh, Diana Prince, don't know who the Ben and Dante are, but if you could talk to your buddies Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne, that would be a real help to me. So that brings us to what the campaign would be. Uh, presumably you're all members of this uh, small community and are, uh, I think for the purposes of a role-playing game, you want to specify that not all of the player characters have to be uh, dream walkers and magicians, but that you uh, have the other specialists who back them up as sort of an auxiliary, so you can still have your uh, your fighter guy or your sneaky guy and, and so forth. So what does our, our first session look like? Um, I think our first session has to be a big fight against witches, because that's, that, that, that's the way that you open it up. You get to uh, use all of your special powers. You get to feel like a cool guy. You saved the little town from uh, from blight and marins and such, and so you possibly lose your useful uh, mentors so that you uh, have to take agency. Yes, the the old midwife dies, and so now it's like, oh nope, now we have to be the the the, the guys who hear who hear and wear the call and, and sort of step up. Uh, possibly you maybe get a hint that there's uh, Livonian werewolves over the horizon of the dream time that are going to be important and maybe they're good and maybe they're bad and you're not really sure. Um, and then the next segment is uh, something, depending on how firm your your grasp on, on village life is and how exciting you think it's going to be, you can either play out a domestic uh, sequence that replicates the good work that you did in the dream time, or you can jump right into a fight against pirates because you've got pirates, for gosh sakes. Let's put them in. So, are there modern Benedante? Yeah, there certainly can be. I mean, I think that you know, if you've got witches, you've got to have people who go fight them. Oh, sorry. Moving back into the real world, do we have modern Benedante? Na naturally, in the, our made-up world, we do. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm saying. But yes. Well, here's the thing. There, if you go on the internet, you can find people who believe in their heart that they are trying to get Cthulhu to talk to them. So, given that, yes, there are people who call themselves Benedante now, or who say that their uh, their magical practice is informed by Benedante tradition, or that they are trying to reconcile the Benedante with uh, Aradia, which was the imaginary witchcraft book that uh, Charles Leland wrote uh, in the 1860s or 1870s when he came back from Italy and decided there weren't enough witches yet. So there are people right now who say that they are Benedante, just like there are people right now who say that they are Knights of Malta. Right, now, but they're, they're revivalists. If those are the guys you... 
uh, those may not be the guys you go talk to when the Ottomans show up, is, is what I'm saying, right? Right. But in our imaginary world, uh, what would a modern Ben and Dante campaign look like? Well, a modern Ben and Dante campaign, you'd, I think you'd want to ask, is the fun of this game the contrast between this sort of medieval uh, worldview and the modern world, in which case you're playing a, a basically a Wainscott game where when you go into the dream space, you're going back into the medieval uh, mindset in the medieval world, and you're still hitting people with fennel, you're not shooting each other with machine guns, or is the game, is the fun part of the game the update, right? The fact that you can, you know, uh, write a virtual werewolf program, or you can um, uh, use your Ben and Dante powers to go down and, and take on ISIS, who are uh, summoning up uh, demons by driving bulldozers through these ancient Assyrian cities, um, uh, whether they're doing it on purpose or by accident. Someone's got to go stop those demons. And so the degree to which you're trying to contemporaneous, to add a contemporaneity to your Ben and Dante game is kind of up to you. And it, it's sort of where, where's your flavor sit? Uh, I, I also should point out that Elizabeth Hand, the terrific, uh, fantasy and, uh, less fantasy, fantastic recently, but terrific fantasy novelist has a, a novel called Waking the Moon in which the Ben and Dante are the bad guys. They're patriarchal sky god dudes. And they go up against uh, the the matriarchal dark moon goddess, uh, but of course she's good enough that you're never quite sure which are the good guys and which are the bad guys. And maybe that's the way you do it: is like, yeah, we know we're going to dream time and we know we're fighting people, but are we sure that a we've got a unbroken chain of transmission from 1575, given that the Inquisition came in, and b even if we did, are we sure that that was the right answer? It may have been the right answer in 1575, but it's maybe not the right answer now, right? In the same way that virtually no other answer you had in 1575 would be right if you answered it the same way. So the name of that Carlo Ginsberg book for people who want to learn more about this is? The Night Battles. And also check out his Ecstasies Deciphering the Witch's Sabbath, in which book Ginsberg throws caution to the winds and ropes in everything else you might want in one of these games. So I would recommend that. Uh, for the gamer in you, and the night battles for the medieval scholar or early modern scholar in you, uh, and both of them together are are very much the um, uh, the A and B of this uh, campaign world. Uh, well, on that bibliographic note, I think we can uh, pat ourselves on the back for another podcast well completed, and move on to our other adventures against witches, pirates, and werewolves. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Scale Realms. OdysseyCon 15. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our two guns blazing by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or magical fennel stick by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. Catch us both at CthulhuCon in Portland, Oregon. April 25th and 26th. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.